Summer's closer than you think. So are Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. With up to 40% off appliance special buys. Like an LG Mega Capacity Top Load Washer and Electric Dryer for just $5.98 each. That'll save loads. But hurry, just like summer. They'll be gone before you know it. Today's the day for doing. With Memorial Day savings now at the Home Depot. More saving. More doing. U.S. only. Waspa's last gas dryer extra. See store for details. Valid through June 5th. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Fellas, I'm ready to get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Weir and Justin Gibney, brought to you by the AM Campaign and the Crux and the Call. Justin, how are you this week? I'm good, man. I'm ready to do what we do every week, which is talk about the intersection between faith and politics. And as you know, uh, the state of the American, uh, the state of American politics, never fails to give us plenty of material. So we we once again have a lot to talk about. It it sure didn't fail us uh, this week in terms of giving us a lot to talk about. Uh, in addition to running down some of the uh, current events and discussions from the last week, we also have an interesting discussion and interview uh, this this week, uh, don't you think, Justin? Yeah, it's going to be good. We'll be talking to Jack Alexander, who is the author of The God Impulse, The Power of Mercy in an Unmerciful World. We'll be talking a little bit about racial reconciliation, uh, social justice, and all that stuff. So it should be interesting. You, you'll, you're in for a treat. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's dive into it. And uh, of course, you know, I I think an appropriate place to start this week is with the ongoing conversation about Representative Ilhan Omar from Minnesota. Omar, as folks will remember, made a a lot of waves in an inspiring way when she uh, first entered Congress. She is a uh, she came to this country as a refugee. Folks might remember the the photo she uh, she tweeted out of her and her father arriving at the airport for the first time in America. And uh, Omar is is considered you know part of part of the group with AOC and Rashida Tlaib and Ayanna Presley. Um, so really, one of these uh, aggressive, uh, inspiring for a lot of folks, uh, fr- freshman uh, members of Congress. She's gotten some some trouble over her remarks regarding uh, Israel and pro-Israel advocacy groups. She uh, suggested over a tweet several weeks ago that pro-Israel support was quote all about the Benjamins. Uh, she has indicated that those who support Israel have uh, dual loyalties and, and really pulled on some tender threads uh, to the extent that some people accuse her remarks of being anti-Semitic. People have pushed back on that criticism by saying that she's simply 
uh, sort of raising uh, an important foreign policy debate and that there's a difference between criticizing the Jewish people or even Israel for being Jewish and criticizing Israeli foreign policy and America's relationship uh, with Israel. Uh, We saw in the uh, House uh, a consideration originally of a resolution to condemn anti-Semitism in response to all this. There was pushback from the left, and so the House ended up passing a a resolution that was covered anti-Semitism, but also covered Islamophobia, homophobia, and and a range of other prejudices uh, in a move that was, of course, critiqued on the right. Uh, Justin, what do you think of this this controversy? Do you think Representative Omar crossed the line? Do you think her comments were anti-Semitic? Um, and, uh, and, and what do you think of how the House uh, proceeded to, to deal with this? The first thing I would say is that there needs to be a discussion. And, and I think too often these resolutions uh, act as a means of just moving along, right, without actually having a conversation about this. Not everyone is clear on exactly where the line is drawn between a critique of Israel and actually what uh, is considered anti-Semitism. And that needs to be understood because if you look at the history from uh, the Holocaust and all those things, we certainly don't want to return to where people are being used as scapegoats and all that. Without a doubt, uh, I would hope most people would agree that's not where we want to go. But if outside of Washington, outside of the establishment, I'm not sure your average American really is sure where that line is to be drawn, where we can critique and and have a real conversation and where it's just going too far. We need to have that conversation. I think with Congresswoman uh, Omar, there's been some uh, comments that were surely problematic to many people. Uh, You know, her her last comment was insinuating that American support for Israel is just fueled by money, as you said before, fueled by uh, pro-Israel lobbying groups. And if if that's a real uh, critique, we need to have a conversation about it. But if you look at some of the other things she said in that regard, people would say in some it becomes something that is very problematic. But let's have the discussion. I mean, we pass a toothless resolution. It doesn't make the issue go away. And so I think the best thing that you can do for both sides is have clear, defined lines of what is okay to say and what is out of bounds. I'm not sure that's clear now. As you know, uh, Nancy Pelosi quickly condemned the comments, uh, but apparently received a, a lot of pushback. She had a meeting with some Democrats in the progressive wing, and it's being reported that she actually walked out of the meeting. Uh, because she said they just weren't listening to her. And that's not what you would expect. P- Pelosi usually, uh, until she had to deal with some of these newer Democrats, she usually handled those type of things pretty quickly. Uh, someone said that Johanna Hayes, who's also a, a congresswoman, accused uh, Pelosi of getting her talking points on this issue from MSNBC. So I think that's a way of saying it wasn't being intellectually honest. You weren't here to have a real conversation. You're just you know, throwing, kind of parroting the talking points that have been thrown out there. This is a serious issue for the Democratic Party, and it shows once again where in some ways uh, Trump is kind of holding the party together. Right. The fact that uh, there is a a huge problem with Trump, it's kind of uh, allowed us to glaze over, allowed the Democratic Party to glaze over some of the issues that are going on. But this is one of those things where it's not going to be settled by a resolution. There needs to be a town hall or whatever to say, hey, here's why this is an issue. Here's where the line needs to be drawn on 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 Israel and every other group, right? So we can avoid the hate, so we can uh, avoid Islamophobia, and really move forward with an understanding of what's constructive 
what's not constructive. Yeah, and I mean, a big part of what's happening here, and you touched on it, is this is actually one of the few uh, uh, real cleavages in the Democratic Party right now that is, you know, sensitive enough to be uh, to be, you know, politically worth exploiting. And Donald Trump uh, and Republicans generally are doing this because Republicans are actually quite unified on on this subject uh, with with a couple exceptions. Um, but 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 Democrats, especially with uh, some of the more liberal members of the freshman class, uh, you know, there's there's some real tension here. And you're absolutely right. You know, uh, when these types of things flare up, uh, they, they they become political problems, not just sort of points of uh, uh, not just points of policy debate. And so, you know, I think Nancy moved to try and try and uh, try and get past it. And we'll see if it flares up again this week. But yeah, um, it's also somewhat of a social problem. I mean, when when people don't have the answers as to why certain lines are drawn or, or why they aren't drawn, it doesn't, you know, when you just gloss over it, it actually doesn't fix the problem. And that's why there needs to be a greater conversation to actually say, hey, this this is the reason why this causes such a disturbance. I'm just not sure everybody's clear on that. Maybe we think they should be, but if they're not, you have to have that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to talk about a fight between Donald Trump and Ann Coulter, uh, which is... You'll do it right to grow the best garden you can. Lowe's does it right, too, with savings on miracle Grow potting mix with fertilizer to help you get growing. And grow plants twice as big versus unfed plants. Pick up a 50-quart bag now for just $10. Plus, get Bonnie 2.32-quart vegetables and herbs, three for $10. For a garden that's worthy of showing off, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 6-5 while supplies last U.S. only. Excludes Alaska and Hawaii worth some exploration so when we get back we'll discuss that and more this is the church politics podcast All right, we're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And uh, Justin, as we mentioned before the break, this interesting feud on the right is brewing between uh, Ann Coulter and Donald Trump. It seems to be based in Coulter's disappointment with uh, Trump's ability to move forward with the wall and what she thinks is is uh, maybe a, a lack of commitment there. Criticized his State of the Union Coulter uh, said that uh, if I promise you, uh, she said, I promise you the country would be run much better if I had a veto over what Donald Trump is doing. It's crazy that I expect a president to keep the promise he made every day for 18 months. And so this was, she said that comment on real time with Bill Maher. Uh, Donald Trump, of course, uh, couldn't possibly let a statement from a outdated shock jock uh, go unanswered reality TV show star that he was and and still is, uh, it seems. And so he tweeted out a wacky nut job and Coulter who still hasn't figured out that despite all odds and an entire Democrat party of far left radicals against me, not to mention certain Republicans who are sadly unwilling to fight, I am winning on the border. Major sections of wall are being built and renovated with much more to follow shortly. And then he continued to talk about 
the number of illegal immigrants that have been apprehended and uh, the fact that he's going to continue to uh, stop, uh, quote, stop the invasion uh, as the wall gets built. You know, there's there's a lot to sort of consider here. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind, Justin, is after reading those tweets, I've become a strong opponent of the expansion to 280 characters. I mean, that you know, one thing. I think on a policy level, it does uh, does show just how far to the right the immigration debate is going has has gone. If Donald Trump isn't far right enough on immigration, then says something. And then, of course, it also says. Uh, something about the fact that we have a president who is tweeting at someone like Ann Coulter and having public arguments with her on social media. Uh, uh, Justin, what what do you take away from this? Do you think that this is indicative of something that's real happening on the right? Or do you think this is a sort of uh, celebrity, you know, entertainment banter? Well, well, as you know, this was one of his main campaign promises, right? This wall was going to get done one way or another. At one point, Mexico was going to pay for it. And, and, you know, all this tough talk about the wall. So for Ann Coulter to bring it up, I think it's less about her, which she's someone for me to heart. That's for me hard to take seriously. But it could become an issue for Trump if he does not get it done. Because what she saw and the opportunity that she kind of uh, that she jumped on was the fact that he did back up when it came to. And I think he made the right decision at the end of the day when it came to getting the government back going. But he did kind of give in to what what Democrats uh, were, were, were putting in front of him. And so she sees the opportunity to say, hey, you backed up. You didn't do what you said you were going to do. And what she understands is that he's getting a lot of pressure even within the party because a lot of people felt this uh, wall declaration, this emergency declaration was just a bad look and a bad way to go. He's getting a lot of pressure. It looks like he may not even get it done uh, or he'll have to actually veto the you know, the the um, the bill that comes through. And so he's in a tough position. What she's trying to do, it seems, uh, outside of just trying to be provocative, is make sure that he's not going to continue to backpedal. Right. There are very few things or if any that I've ever agreed with when it comes to Ann Coulter, especially on immigration. But the game she's playing here makes a little bit of sense because she's calling him out to his base, which is the far right, that 30 percent that is just not going to leave him and saying, hey, we we're going to make sure that you know that we're watching you and making sure you're not going to back down from the demands that the Democrats are making. And so she's calling him out. And there's something to that. Right. Uh, I think a lot of times, especially within my community, sometimes we like a a politician so much that we leave them to their own devices. And what Coulter is saying here is, no, I may have been one of your biggest defenders, but right now you look weak. You're not doing what you said you told you're not doing what you told us you were going to do. And I'm going to call you out for that. Sometimes you have to do that. I think she's probably a poor example of that. But politically speaking, it is somewhat strategic because really she's just posturing, right? She's trying to make sure that he knows there's going to be pushback on the right, too. And this is where, you know, this is your bread and butter. This is where this is. These are the people who brought you to the dance. You better yeah, do the and right it thing. It seems, you know, the signals that were in the reporting that we're seeing about how the Trump campaign is developing is that there, there seems to even be an understanding internal to the campaign that they're going to be even more reliant on their base this time around, that some of the independent voters that 
were able to swing to the Republican side because independents typically swing to the out of power par- uh, party, uh, especially after a two term presidency. That opportunity obviously isn't going to be available for Trump's reelection campaign. And so Ann Coulter is really striking at something that's critical for President Trump's a success in 2020. So I, I, I think that's that's right. And we'll see if the Trump team is able to patch up the wound. I mean, it, it'll be interesting whether how much pushback Ann Coulter gets from, uh, you know, her similarly situated pundit talk show kind of class on the right wing, those that are supportive of Trump. Uh, you know, is there a price that she pays for this? Right. No, that's good. But I, I think at the end of the day, if there is something to pull from anything Coulter says, it's that you always have to be willing to call even your own who you feel you are your own politicians out. Uh, that is necessary. And so maybe there is a lesson in that. We have this interview with Jack Alexander. But before we get to that, w- want to talk about one more story. And believe it or not, it's uh Canada and Canadian politics. <laughs> we, we don't get to discuss that too much uh, on the Church Politics podcast. Canada is dealing with a controversy of its own. Uh, Justin Trudeau, the prime minister, is dealing with a controversy of his own. Uh, the, the basics here are that Justin Trudeau and his aides uh, have been accused of putting pressure on his attorney general uh, to stop pursuing a case against a Quebec engineering company, SNC-Lavalin. SNC-Lavalin is facing corruption charges for giving Libyan officials $38 million in order to secure contracts, uh, which, which you know, is a, is a, is a you know, significant corruption violation. Trudeau said that he, he wanted the attorney general to consider the cost to Canadian uh, jobs and employment prosecuting this. Neither his former attorney general, who has since stepped down, or really anyone is accusing Trudeau of illegal behavior, uh, but there is this charge of unethical behavior and failing to live up to his campaign promise and sort of reputation as this next generation transparent politician. Now, there are all kinds of like interesting Canadian elements to this. So the attorney general, the former attorney general, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould was, is an indigenous person. Prime Minister Trudeau made a big deal of, of having multiple indigenous cabinet officials. And so uh, th- that's become a tension point, this idea that he hasn't, uh, that, that he forced uh, a cabinet member who, who was from that population to feel like they had to resign to keep their integrity. And so that's an interesting element. There's also the element that uh, Trudeau comes from Quebec. And so there's this accusation that he is uh, preferential to Quebec and hasn't stepped in similarly when, uh, when other jobs were in the line elsewhere. So uh, there are sort of Canadian specific elements uh, to this sort of internal Canadian politics. But the big message is Trudeau's facing this this uh, charge against his integrity and his, his sort of leadership role in Canada. I find this story to be fascinating, fascinating from an American perspective. One thing that you'll see in both American coverage and the Canadian coverage is the sense that I can't believe this is a controversy given everything that's happening in America. I mean, I mean, all of the stories sort of quote from people indicating like there's no sex involved. There's no uh, money laundering involved on Trudeau's part. Uh, and yet this is, you know, what a quaint controversy this is. Do you, do you think that this is a big deal or, or do you think that this is uh, kind of quaint? 
uh, somewhere in between. I don't I don't think it's the 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 biggest deal given, you know, relative to what we're going through in America right now. <laughs> but when you do show that type of partiality to big companies, especially mm-hmm. with the uh standard that Trudeau uh, set for himself, it does mm-hmm. become problematic. And we don't ever want to look at ethics violations as if they don't matter because they just mm-hmm. get bigger and bigger. And so, as you pointed out, the fact that this attorney general had to resign, I, I want to say that she was demoted before she resigned. Yeah, right. That's right. She didn't necessarily right. go along with this. She refused the request to be to show this company partiality. Uh, I, I, it is problematic. Um, we also have to recall, I mean, Justin Trudeau is was the darling of the kind of Western elite secular progressive world. Uh, I believe it was Vanity Fair who called him the shining beacon of liberalism in North America. Uh, and so he kind of rode in on this white horse with the with the white hat on. And so when you start to get dirty, you get real dirty very quickly uh, when, when, when you kind of take that posture. Nothing wrong with setting high standards. I think that is great. But I don't think people should just look past this issue. Now, should it cost them, you know, uh, the next election or something like that? Well, that's for the Canadian people to decide. But you don't want to start overlooking it just because there is a Trump in the world. And so because because Trump exists, none of this stuff matters. (laughs) That's that's not where we want to go with it. But this is you know, this is serious stuff. I mean, a lot of what went wrong in America in 2008 and and everything else was showing partiality or. Mm you know, doing things for large companies that you wouldn't necessarily take in consideration how it was affecting everyone else. And so these issues can grow very big over time. And so, no, they shouldn't be overlooked. Yes, people have to be held to their own standards, but you have to be realistic about, you know, everything else. It's not the only thing that he's doing, right? And so what has he done in in other categories and how well is he doing uh, otherwise? That has to be looked at too, but I would not dismiss it. It's something that should be taken seriously. Yeah. What I uh, find interesting is th- this idea that because sort of Trump is in the, is in the world, right? This is Canadian politics. We're, we're not even, we're not even dealing with, you know, a congressional scandal here or a future administration here. Uh, other countries are saying, can we really pay attention to this when, you know, when America is dealing with President Trump? And that's that's a scary place for the world to be. It's it's one that we need to guard against here in the States, uh, which is uh, th- this idea that now a new standard has been set and anything that doesn't meet sort of this low is is now palatable. So in that sense, you know, C- Canadians demand for transparency from their government. Maybe it's a little quaint, but maybe you know, it's a good kind of quaint. It's it's a it's a a, a level of citizen accountability that that hopefully we don't lose here. But I think you have to ask too if a company is willing to pay thirty five million dollars in bribes in Libya. What are they willing to do in Canada? What have they been allowed to do in Canada? Yeah, right? right. I mean, because if if I'm the CEO or whoever's making these decisions, you know, a procurement officer, and we're willing to do that, that's about principles. That's about our larger principles and what we do and how we conduct ourselves outside of that. So I think larger questions arise. And for Trudeau to put himself out there for a company who's I mean, that's a big deal because the people of Libya could suffer or whatever. That means they did not go through the proper procurement process. And that has an effect on the people. It's cheating the people because you didn't really go through the process that you were going gonna you were supposed to go through because you're taking bribes. Uh, that's an issue. And so for him to put his neck out for that kind of company says something. 
but I don't think he can just be, he should just be judged on that, but it, he definitely, definitely should be watched. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. Well, when we get back, we're going to introduce y'all to Jack Alexander. I will tell you more about him after the break, but I really think you'll enjoy this interview. You'll do it right to grow the best garden you can. Lowe's does it right too with savings on miracle Grow potting mix with fertilizer to help you get growing and grow plants twice as big versus unfed plants. Pick up a 50-quart bag now for just $10. Plus, get Bonnie 2.32-quart vegetables and herbs, three for $10. For a garden that's worthy of showing off, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 6-5 while supplies last U.S. only. Excludes Alaska and Hawaii. And you'll hear it when we get back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. All right, Ann Camp, early in the episode, we told you that we would be speaking to a special guest and doing somewhat of an interview. And so we are here with um, Jack Alexander. He is the uh, author of The God Impulse, uh, which is the power of mercy in an unmerciful world. Uh, Jack is the chairman of the Reimagine Group, which is a content company that serves the faith-based market and also a software company called On Q, and he is here with us today. How's it going, Jack? Uh, great, Justin. Great to be with you. Good, good, good. So we want to learn all about this book, The God Impulse. Talk to us a little bit, a little bit about what inspired you to write this book and what's behind it. Well, looking at our society today, you see probably unparalleled levels of incivility and divisiveness. And we basically build the case in the book that the church has under-taught and underrepresented mercy. And uh, that's, that's a big part of our problem. Mercy. Talk to me a little bit about mercy, because as I, w- I was going through your book, you mentioned that mercy comes from the Latin word meaning price paid or wage. How should that be applied? And how do you talk about mercy in your book in a practical sense? Yeah, well, Jesus uh, gave us the story of the Good Samaritan, which was pretty operative. He said, go and do likewise in terms of how we should treat our neighbors. And the expert in the law that Jesus was talking to referred to the four things the Samaritan did as mercy, that he showed mercy. And the four things are to see someone's need, to go to them, to do what's necessary, and to endure in the relationship. So it's really very practical. In the book, I call it uh, the pattern of love. And anybody who's married, their spouse sometimes can say, sometimes I feel like you don't see me right now. And so uh, a good number of our stories in the book are about uh, racial reconciliation. And that's been a big focus because uh, the church has been uh, very delinquent in this area of reconciliation. You know, when you start talking about mercy, uh, especially in this day and age, people start to think just about how inefficient uh, mercy mercy can be and how mercy can't. Uh, it's difficult to instrumentalize it. Justin and I obviously think about this a great deal in the political context, but I think it's relevant in people's personal lives. You know, mercy can be costly. <laughs> but mercy uh, means you're, you're letting go of some kind of advantage or tool that you might have had in another, if you did not employ uh, mercy, how do you think about 
sort of the, the costly nature of mercy? And, and how would you encourage our listeners to take that chance? Well, that's a great question, Michael. And uh, for years, I thought mercy was deeds. It's costly. It's messy. It's something you just should do. Jesus comes along and says, mercy is an investment. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And to me, it's so exciting as I've embarked on this journey to see how the investments we make in other people, it's really proving that we love them. It's an engaged heart. And right now our world is so busy that we don't have time to show mercy. And there's an old saying that we want mercy for ourselves and justice for everyone else. And and you'll notice in the Samaritan story that he saw his, his enemy and had compassion on him. And in the third step, he did things of justice. And I think a huge gap we see in our world today is people want to jump right to justice without engaging our hearts and going through the hard work of mercy. And again, it's a mercy that God will promise to repay us for. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, in some circles, especially especially white evangelical circles, social justice is a bad word. Uh, can you give us some insight into why that is and what and what might be missing from that uh, analysis? I think social justice has been so politicized, and I think the racial conversation has been politicized, too. And Barna had a statistic. I, I did the study along with Barna that said 90 percent of evangelical Christians don't have a close friend that looks differently or believes differently than they do. So I'm very, very concerned that the evangelical church has put themselves in a bubble. And so they see things like social justice as threats rather than an invitation to really love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Is this something that can only be worked out on on the personal community level and even even more more uh, narrow on the individual level uh, do you think that there's a way to, to sort of scale up mercy or do you think the the higher up you get the more abstract and difficult it becomes well again mercy is an engaged heart and whether it's the president whether it's a congressman both of which have all-time low approval mm-hmm. ratings I think it's something like 16 percent for Congress and I think the president's around 40%. People look for leaders who have an engaged heart. You can be with somebody for a couple minutes and can see whether they're looking you in the eye and whether they really Mm. care. And I think that, I think it's a remarkable trait for a leader to take time with people to see them and listen to them. I think that leaders often, and and Christianity is a proclamation religion, so often we see our Christian leaders speaking rather than listening. And I think the heads of our churches and the heads of corporations, the years of white men over 50, you know, picking up Bibles and saying, thus saith the Lord, I think are over. And I think the same thing's happening in our corporations. Uh, And the software company that you mentioned uh, it's a software around listening to employees, and we actually trademarked the term return on listening. So I think that this can happen in, in the political sphere as well as in the corporate sphere. 
talk to me a little bit about, you know, in, in ancient, the ancient Hebrews followed a concept called Hased, and you mentioned Hased in your book. Can you talk to us to us a little bit about that concept in general and then the application uh, to moderate what, what's going on within racial reconciliation and, and the things we've been talking about today? Yeah, God's has said love is this enduring love, a love that will, it's a covenant love, a love that won't stop. It's, uh, it's the promise that God gave to his people. And it's that enduring love that when the, I love it when the Samaritan said to the innkeeper, he says, when I return. So this, he did just things for his enemy but he showed a, a desire to come back, a desire to reconnect. And so when Jesus said, go and do likewise, I mean, that's what we need to see in these cross-racial relationships is this sense of commitment. Like right now, I think the average white family has a net worth of 90000 The average black family has a net worth of $1,000 or something like that. And what the goal of the reimagine group is, is that this breaks the heart of the white church. The more we learn the story of what's happened the last 400 years, that the heart's broken. And literally, if you have a thousand dollar net worth, your car can't break down. You can't miss a paycheck. And I just feel like this bubble mentality, of the evangelical church, uh, if something doesn't happen to change it, God will bring uh, some sort of tribulation to uh, scatter it. Jack, what kind of pushback have you received kind of from your peers in this regard as you go about talking about this? We know that the cost of discipleship means that we are going to get pushback, that not everybody's going to agree with what we believe. What has been the pushback you received and also the, the more promising aspects of it? Well, first I'll address the the response from African-Americans. I think that initially there's this like, what, who are you? And yet, if they see a sincerity and a desire really to lean in and to work and to to take steps that actually cost, I've just been so impressed because I think our African-American brothers and sisters understand mercy at a level that whites simply do not understand. And that's so, so the focus has been maybe more on that. In terms of uh, my white brothers and sisters, they're there's definitely, like Barna found out, that 50% of Christians in America think that there's no residual impact from slavery. And so there definitely is that, that percentage, but there's only 25% that are hardcore. You know, we don't want to lament, repent, give reparations. 25% of, of Christians are saying, we want to lament, we want to repent, we want to do reparations. And 50% of people are saying, we just don't know what to do. So guys, I think it's an amazing opportunity for the church to lead, to tell the story, because in my book, I say that mercy begins with knowing someone else's story. And I think, I think I'm hopeful that as the white church opens its hearts allows those hearts to be broken, that change can happen. And so when you, you brought up the R word. And so when you bring up reparations, I'm guessing it's not a a government obligation, but are you saying within the body that reparations should should be something to consider? Tell us a little bit about your your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I call it reparations of the heart because if, 
I mean, the, in in First John, it says, if you behold your brother in need, it's within your power to help him, and you don't do it. How can the love of God abide in you? And I would I would re rephrase that verse to say, if a white Christian can look at what's happened over four hundred years, and does not want to repent, lament, to provide restitution. I would say, how can the love of God abide in you? I think that it's something that should happen, not legally, but morally, as people's hearts get broken. I I mean, a number of African-American leaders have said, do I believe in this? And I said, there's massive sin that has taken place in the Bible. The Bible says providing restitution is good, not just for the recipient, but for the one who gives it. So whether it's helping African-Americans in their businesses, whether it's uh, forming legitimate partnerships where uh, each can benefit, I think that there's huge opportunity over the next 10 years in doing these type of activities together. The social and sort of political implications of the kind of heart change that you're talking about uh, you, you know, I, I think are, are real and, and we could think through all of those. I mean, I think you know, part of it's reflected in uh, uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about it on this episode too much. But uh, David Brooks of The New York Times made uh, uh, made some waves last week for um, for saying that he, that he supported uh, 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 reparations. And so we're seeing this very interesting conversation uh, that I think uh, flowed out of personal interaction and personal experience into the social and the political realms. But, but Jack, what would you say is like the, the, what what would you say is, how would the church change? What, what is the, what what would be the potential of embracing uh, this heart of mercy uh, for, for, for the church be even, even apart from, you know, the more sort of uh, uh, social and, and political implications? Yeah, I mean, we surveyed liberal churches, conservative churches, African-American churches, white churches with Barna, and perhaps not surprisingly, the liberal churches were more in favor of this whole repenting, lamenting, you know, providing reparations than the conservative churches were. And really, frankly, guys, that's why I wrote this book. I have a very uh, liberal guy, Walter Brueggemann, write, writing the foreword. And yet I've got Tim Keller and Andy Stanley and Crawford Loritz and Eric Mason. And I'm trying to get people really who have maybe more conservative doctrine to see that the conservative church is in a crisis right now. And Claude Alexander, I interviewed him and he talked about Acts 1-8, where Jesus said to go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And Claude said that the white church has jumped Samaria. And what he meant by that is the church has gone from Jerusalem, Judea, to the uttermost parts of the world. And if, and if you look at Samaritan, Samaria as a place of racial and ethnic tension, the church has in effect said, would rather go paint churches in Guatemala than to go into the hood to go meet our neighbors, our African-American brothers and sisters, where they are. And so... I'm doing a series of interviews with leaders in addition to the book, in addition to the uh, Barna initial study. Barna and I are coming out with a second study in April that dimensionalizes mercy, and one of the sections is on race. So we're really trying to hit the conservatives hard. Uh, People say to me, Jack, how can the conservative church change? 
And I say the only way to change the conservative church is to show their doctrine is wrong. And that's why I've got this diverse group of leaders endorsing the book and getting all this Barna data to show that, I mean, if you look at Matthew 7, 12, if you look at Galatians 5, 14, Galatians 6, 2, Romans 13, 10, they all said that the whole law is fulfilled when we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And, and I think when the conservative church sees what the Bible really says, they should approach their African-American neighbors, not just with engaged hearts, but with open check, open wallets, open relationships. Uh, so to me, that's the challenge that the Re- reimagine group we've, uh, initiated something called the Day of Remembrance that's being held uh, this August in Atlanta, Georgia, where we'll have a two-day conference and a march from Ebenezer Baptist Church to Woodruff Park. Uh, So we're really trying to take steps to get people on the side of truth. And the book talks about this imbalance between truth and mercy and to frankly show the conservative church that it's held truth appropriately high, but it's, as Barna says, it's under indexed mercy. Jack, how, how do you think that occurred, though? How, how do you, because even if you look back, I mean, whether it's European history or other history, there was a feeling that an understanding that mercy and justice was very important. How do we, do, how do we uh, account for people missing that today? Is it a matter of kind of uh, political ideology seeping into the theology? What do you see as that, that disconnect? Yeah, Justin, great question. We call it gospel confusion. One of the questions in the Barna study was, how do you define the gospel? And only 25% of Christians in America embrace the four-pronged gospel, which is creation, fall, redemption, restoration, versus the two-pronged individual gospel of I'm a sinner, Jesus died for me. So I think that the good news, our product as Christians is that this full gospel that wants everything restored. Jesus said he wants to make all things new. And so again, it's coming back to the church and showing them the shortcomings that they have, not only in the gospel that they're preaching, but in statistically these, these, uh, you know, this isolation that they're having with uh, this 90% I mentioned earlier. Great. Well, Jack, really appreciate everything that you've you've shared. Uh, we're about ready to close out the show, but I want to give you an opportunity to uh, for our listeners who want to step into this vision uh, and this call that, that that you've you've described here. What what's some advice that you you'd give uh, for for how they would do so? Well, as Christians, we're called to represent God. And uh, Psalm 2510 says, all the ways of the Lord are mercy and truth. And 47 times in Scripture, God couples uh, mercy and truth. And uh, Psalm 85, he says, when mercy and truth meet, righteousness and peace kiss. So I would really challenge any Christian to look at the balance of mercy and truth in their life And I personally believe that conservatives are way out of balance with a higher view of truth, a lower view of mercy, and liberals 
oftentimes have a higher view of mercy and a lower view of truth. And I feel like we're all called to represent a great God, one who gave everything for us and one who had mercy on our souls. And I love it when the publican says, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. And Jesus said he was justified. So I think that's that mercy truth balance, I think, is where we represent God's character well. That's great. Well, Jack, thank you for being with us. Uh, We wish you the best with your book and all that you're doing out in the communities for um, just the restoration and reconciliation of the races. And uh, best of luck to you with all that. Maybe we'll have you back again. Okay. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Take care. Well, Justin, I really appreciated that uh, that conversation with 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 Jack. He he has uh, such a good good heart, and you know, brought some I think important reminders to to me and to to uh, to our, our listeners. Uh, uh, what what was your kind of takeaway now that you've had some opportunity to to think about the interview? Well, I think it goes to show that we really have to enter into this conversation about social justice, racial reconciliation, recompense and all this other stuff. We have to enter into it in earnest Mm. uh, with an honesty and that true uh, courage within that conversation often calls us to challenge the people who are on our side of the conversation, Mm. the people who are actually listening and the people who are within our sphere of influence. And so I hope Jack will continue to do that uh, and others will follow. And so I would uh, advise people read the God impulse It's a good book and continue to move towards that reconciliation uh, of uh, kind of going towards social justice and all those things that as Christians, we are called to do. Absolutely. Well, uh, just, I I think that just about wraps us up for uh, this week. It's already, a, you know, I think it's going to be a significant week in, in politics. The Trump administration has put out a budget, budget proposal. We also have reports from Axios that the Trump administration is preparing a series of uh, executive orders to uh, to try and appeal to independents and, and uh, see, see what kind of traction they can get. Uh, and, you know, it, it's only the beginning of the week. So we'll be back next week to uh, to cover everything that's happened, including, you know, whatever developments are in the 2020 race. Uh, Justin, do you have any any closing thoughts before before we wrap it up? Yeah, I just end by saying this. Uh, thanks again for everybody who's listening to us every week. We really appreciate it. Uh, you can listen on I- iTunes. And so that's one way to do it. If you are listening on iTunes, please just rate us, uh, put some comments so people know how you feel about this podcast. That's always very helpful to us. And then you can always also go over the fourth district. Uh, and we appreciate fourth district for hosting this and you can listen to it there as well. Absolutely. All right, folks. Have a blessed week. We'll see you on the other side. This is the Church Politics Podcast. This is the groove. Tell me, can I'm scolding the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a fame. E-cigs don't burn tobacco leaves, and they come in lots of flavors. That's what tobacco companies tell you. Here are three things tobacco companies don't say. One, many teens don't know their flavored e-cigs have nicotine. Two, Nicotine is a poison that can rewire the teen brain. Three, 80% of kids who tried vaping did it because of the flavors. So even when it tastes like candy, nicotine is brain poison.
Go to flavorshookkids.org for more. Napa know-how. At Napa Auto Parts, you can get $25 or more off brand new DeWalt power tools by trading in your old ones. You know, those worthless tools you never use anymore? Yeah, those dusty things can actually save you at least $25 on new DeWalt power tools. Hmm, not so worthless after all. Quality parts, helpful people. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating Napa Auto Parts stores, while supplies last. Offer ends 6 30 19.